Yes, I have uh, announced already. Already, as we were looking into some passages in the Gospel of John, and yesterday again, as we were looking into Romans, that Christ, and that is uh, an essential part of the great salvation, is living, and by his life, he's saving us through this world of death and temptation and seduction. So we are going to turn to John chapter 17, and we are going to meditate on the high priestly prayer of the Lord. Before we read part of the text, just as an introduction to better understand this chapter, what is the occasion of his praying to the Father for his own? Well, the very first verse gives us this information, John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and then, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, he spoke these things. What things? All the words he spoke when he was alone with the eleven. Chapter 13, Judas had gone out into the night. And there, together with the, the Jewish leaders, to uh, arrange for the apprehending the Lord. Now he is alone with the eleven. And he prepares them for his going away. And of course they are troubled. He announces already in chapter 13, after Judas has gone, that he's going to leave them. And Peter says, why are you leaving us? And why can't we not follow you? I will follow you. And the Lord says, you will not follow me now. And of course they are disturbed in their hearts, troubled. And so Jesus, he begins, begins his um, words of comfort with this word in John 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. And then he speaks in such a way to them that after he has spoken all those words, their hearts are no more troubled. We read that in chapter 16. Believe in God, believe in me, your hearts be not troubled. And then John 16, 31, Jesus answered them, and most translations put this short word of the Lord uh, ended with a question mark. Do you now believe? The Greek has no uh, signs for, how do you say, interpunction. It does not have those such uh, signs. What is the English term for it? Inter what? Interpunction. Yeah, interpunction we say in German. Good. Same term in English. Uh, the Greek text doesn't have that. So you can read this as a statement, and I prefer to read it as a statement. 
The Lord has spoken in such a way to the, to, to the, to, to the disciples that now they believe and trust. Jesus answered them, you do now believe. But then he announces, an hour will come, and then you will all be scattered. So they believe now, but the, their faith would again break. It will not end, but the, it would break down. And this is the occasion for him to pray for his own. And the location is also quite revealing. Where is he as he has the disciples gathered around him while lifting up his eyes and his voice to the Father? And in their hearing, he prays. He wants them to hear him pray, every word, to pray every word for their comfort. And what is the occasion? Chapter 14 ends with verse 31. So his first address is here. His first address he gave in the upper room. And then he leaves the upper room. Chapter 14, 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Go where? to walk through Jerusalem, through the uh, uh, streets of Jerusalem, in the night, where people are now are plotting against him to bring him to death, and then into the garden of Gethsemane, where he then will be taken, led away, judged, and proclaimed guilty and executed. So he is now walking his last steps into the hours of his suffering. And this is the occasion. And while walking through the streets of Jerusalem, a city which is at enmity now, it is night and darkness is prevailing, also spiritual and moral darkness and enmity against him, he speaks about bringing fruit. How to bring fruit in such a world? That's John 15, but that's not now our theme. And then in chapter 16, he speaks about a time will come when they will believe that they do God, God, a service when they kill you. And how on earth shall we then survive alone without thee? But the Lord, he speaks in such a way about the coming of the Comforter who will be with them the Holy Spirit who will instruct them and remind them of all words he has spoken and that all will be... I only said enough. No, not yet enough. What uh, still is needed is not only their knowledge, but they need that knowledge, but also the fact that the living Lord in heaven is continually interceding for them. That their faith fail not. And we need that knowledge. We need that knowledge. And here in this wonderful, well, it's uh, always, um, you have probably many of you heard um, Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching, and almost every passage uh, he takes and explains that this is one of the most glorious passages in Scripture. And he realized himself, well, you can't always say one of the most glorious. But with John 17, I am tempted to say, 
I know of no other chapter which is so glorious, so glorious. The Son of God praying to God his Father for you and for me. So this is the chapter we are now going to meditate. John 17. First, and that is the most important thing, to know who it is who is praying. It is the Son praying to the Father. That's verses 1 to 5. Who it is who prays for us. The Son praying to the Father for us. And then the second question, and again most important, you must know if you are concerned in his intercession. We have to know it. Necessarily, you must know this. And if you are still uncertain, if you are concerned in this prayer, then do not rest till you have certainty that you belong to the company of those for whom he prays. Otherwise, this chapter will be of no comfort for you. So secondly, for whom he prays, that's verses 6 to 10. And then comes the third part, what he prays. Who is praying? Jesus, the Son of God, praying to the Father. For whom is he praying? For his own. And he's characterizing them by several traits. So there you can check for yourself. Do I belong to those? Am I such a one? So he prays for his own. And what does he pray? And he has four requests. And these, are, these show us the things for which our living, heavenly, high priest continually prays for his people. Only his own have a heavenly high priest. The unbelievers have no heavenly high priest interceding for them. He says explicitly, I do not pray for the world, but I pray only for those whom thou hast given me. So what does he pray? He prays for us that we be kept in this world. Kept, kept safe. Secondly, he prays that we be sanctified. That means that we be and remain put apart for him and his purposes. So that we don't get away from him and his purposes. Thirdly, he prays for all of us to be one. One in life, one in faith, one in spirit. He doesn't pray for unity, church unity. He prays for the oneness of those who have his life, who have the life of God. And fourthly, he prays to the Father that all his own may be where he is in order to see his glory. So he prays us through all our way to be kept, finally, and to be led into glory. So let's read the first ten and the first five uh, verses now. Who it is who is praying? John seventeen verses one to five. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, 
that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me, together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, this prayer played a, a very important part in the life of John Knox. John Knox. Reform of Scotland. When he, the reformer, when John Knox sensed and knew that now his last hours were approaching, he, for a last time, gathered his old friends who had battled with him for Scotland, that Scotland received the gospel, were standing around him and his young wife. And now I'm quoting a few sentences from an excellent book. Uh, it is written by a German, Josef Schomborn, Der Puritanismus. You understand that without me translating it? Der Puritanismus. And as he was lying there, his friends around him, he said to his young wife, Read to me that chapter in the scriptures where I cast my first anchor. Gospel of John, chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And thus, safe in the innermost haven of the grace of Christ, believing and praying, he goes to his God. And that is truly the innermost haven of Christ's saving grace. He and the Father... And this chapter shows us that all our salvation, all our well-being is a matter between the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Father. And therefore, we are absolutely secured. Neither can the Father become unfaithful, nor can the Son become unfaithful. We are absolutely forever secured. This is truly the innermost haven of the saving grace of God. And this explains the life of John, John Knox. There were innumerable attempts at his life. Queen Mary of Scots, first she tried with, with tears to win him over, and then came threats, and she tried to kill him, to get him out of the way. But nothing could detain that man. He just continued without faltering to the very end. And this explains how that was possible. This is the anchor that kept him. And he knew it. You have to know it also. Where the anchor is, and we have to know it. So it is the Lord praying to his Father. And his first prayer is, glorify your Son. What does he mean by that? When was he glorified? Now John gives us the answer. It is always good when the same writer gives you the answer, then you are sure that ah, this is the only meaning. It can't be meant differently. Uh, so John, he says in his chapter 7 of the Gospel, John 7, verse 
verses 37 to 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, when Jesus prays to the Father, glorify me, we can say he prayed for Pentecost soon to happen. For the pouring out of the Spirit. And again, a, a brief quotation um, out of an excellent commentary on the Gospel of John. I have read a few of them. I don't read through commentaries, but you consult them every now and then, and you read there and here and there. And this is written by a certain Frédéric Godet. You wouldn't know him. Uh, he was a, a Swiss, French-speaking Swiss, reformed theologian and Bible expositor. And Frédéric Godet, he writes in his Commentaire sur l'Évangile de Saint-Jean, in his um, commentary on the Gospel of John, Saint John. « Accorde-moi l'ascension afin que je puisse opérer la Pentecôte. » You understand it, Sandri? He knows French. Grant me the ascension so that I can realize Pentecost. Yes. So he was glorified, taken up to heaven, and as he was glorified, then, as John 7 says, he poured out the Spirit. Then the Spirit was given. Now what does this mean here in the present context of John 17? And he continues and says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, God has given his Son authority over all flesh, so that the Son can give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. Now, uh, the Gospel of John is the Gospel of election. In the other Gospels, you have few, a few hints, but the Gospel of John is the Gospel of election. So, not all will be given to the Son, but such as are given to the Son. And um, the Son has power to give them eternal life. And how does he give eternal life to those whom the Father gives him? That has to do with Pentecost. The Spirit of God was poured out and enabled the disciples to start to preach the gospel. And that is the only means by which the Son of God gives eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. So he prays for Pentecost to happen so that the disciples then will be equipped for their work and not detained. And it is the word preached that leads, that gives eternal life, and eternal life comes by knowledge of the Son of God and of the true and living God. That's why we preach Christ. Because in Christ alone man can know God. And knowing God is eternal life. So verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And none but the word of God through the working of the Spirit of God can give man the assurance, thou art alone, the, the one and, and only true God, and thy Jesus is thy only begotten Son. 
And if you are not taught by the Spirit, by the Word and the Spirit, you will also hear, well, why, why only Jesus, why not other gods and saviors, so-called? So he prays for Pentecost to happen. And then in verse 5, he again prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. And now he is thinking of another, of another uh, important truth. Glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he was the eternal, ever glorious Son of God. And then he became man. And now he returns as a man to heaven and he prays to the Father that the Father now glorify him also in his humanity. And this is how Jesus brings fallen humanity, those whom he has purchased with his blood and made his own, how he brings them from shame to glory. This is how we become partakers of his glory. This is how he is the firstborn among many brethren. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had, my divine glory, that this glory is now given to my redeemed, to your elect. Then come the verses 6 to 10. For whom he prays. For whom does he pray? Verses 6 to 10. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. So here we have the characteristics of those for whom he prays. Now again, the Lord says, he says it several times, and John is the only gospel who tells us that. In John 6 already it comes. But the Lord says that those whom the Father has given to him, they come to him, and he who comes to him, he will in no way cast out. And here again, those whom thou hast given me. We had it in verse 2. All whom you have given him. And then we had it in verse, we have it in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Now how can we know if we belong to those whom the Father has given to the Son? How do we know? How can we know? And here we read, they have kept your word. That is one characteristic. His word, they have heard it, and they keep it, they keep it, they keep it. We don't keep it perfectly. Sometimes we're a little loose in our ways, but we keep it. And we ever return to it, and we can't be without it. They keep it. They have kept your word. And 
Verse 7, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. They received the word of Jesus as words which Jesus spoke, words coming from God. Others of their generation, they said, that's presumption, that's blasphemy. I and the Father are, are one, blasphemy. But here were such who believed, this is from God, it is the truth of God. And his works, the works which he did, from the Father given authority to do such works. And they understood, this proves that he is Messiah, the Son of God. But others, they said, he does those works in the power of Satan. So they have come to know that everything that the Lord said and did was given him from the Father. And then verse 8, the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them. They kept them, they received them, and they keep them henceforth, and they believe that you sent me. They have true faith in him. And I ask on their behalf. It is for those that he now prays and Observe again, he says explicitly that he does not pray for the world. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Only for those whom the Father has given him. Verse 10 then says, All things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. Well, only God can say that. Only a divine person can say that. Everything that belongs to God belongs to me. And everything that belongs to me belongs to you. Well, we can as men say everything that I have belongs actually to God, but we can never say everything that is God's is ours. So he is God. God. All divine prerogatives and um, attributes. Eternal, immutable, omniscient, all-powerful. And I have been... How does the King James Version or New King James translate this? Verse 10 here in the New American Standard says, I have been glorified in them. I am glorified. Yes, I like that better. It is a perfect. It is from, from uh, doxazo and de, do, de, de do kas mai. And that is uh, a perfect is a resultative. So I have been glorified. Yes, and that means that now I am glorified. I am glorified. I am glorified in them. We should think about that. Christ himself, he binds and thus connects his own glory with his own who are in this world. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means he is in his dealing and in his keeping and in his guiding and in his perfecting his own, he's demonstrating who he is. And if one, only one of the elect would be lost, that would be derogatory to his glory. Then this would mean he's not faithful. He said something, he couldn't do it. So it is his own glory which is at stake. His own glory. Yesterday or the day before yesterday, we saw it is God's own righteousness which is at stake. And that means that every 
truly justified person will be glorified. Otherwise, God would not be just. And it is the glory of the Savior, of the Son of God himself, which is at stake. So he will keep us for his own glory's sake and for the glory of his Father's sake. So we see how John, uh, how the Gospel of John, of course, John wrote it by uh, the, the prompting and guidance of the Holy Spirit, how it makes everything the whole matter of salvation a matter of the glory of God the Father and the Son. So we rightly say, as the fifth exclusive uh, particle, soli, Deo, Gloria. It all hinges on the glory of God the Father and God the Son. I am glorified in them. And then the verses 11 to 26. What does he pray? What does he pray for? I am no longer in the world, from verse 11 on. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Not of the eleven alone. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in oneness, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, 
and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them. And I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So we'll look into these four petitions. Keep them, sanctify them, make them one, and let them come to me to see my glory. Verse 11, I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. Yes, our heavenly high priest, he had been in the world. And that, if we may so speak, qualified him to be a compassionate and merciful high priest. A compassionate and merciful high priest. He knows how a child of Adam is in this world and he knows how it is to be one who lives in this world, who no more belongs to this world. He knows. He was a stranger in this world. He came from the other world, from heaven, and was hated for it. And people wouldn't have him away with that man. They don't want to have him. And he left the world. And he knows how it, how it feels, how we feel to be in such a world. We do no more belong to this world. We long to be in heaven. And he knows how it is to be despised, to meet opposition, to go through setbacks, painful experiences. He knows it all. There is no kind of woe and of pain and of sorrow which he, the man, Jesus, has not gone through. And moreover, he has suffered things which we never will have to suffer, namely being forsaken of God and judged by God. So we see how he feels with them. I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. Father, keep them. Father, keep them. Watch over them. And the disciples are standing here hearing it, hearing it. What a comfort. But then maybe they thought, but what, what about Judas? Where, where is he? Where is he not here? And then after the following hours, when they saw Judas, traitor, the traitor, his betrayal, and that was for, for them such a shocking experience. So they must have thought, if that could happen to, to, to Judas, what about us? What about us? And therefore the Lord mentions Judas in his prayer and he wants his disciples to hear it. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me and I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. And then he gives an explanation. That the scripture would be fulfilled and Peter was always very attentive. He was a most attentive man. So we can really learn that from him. I like Peter. Very attentive. And he remembered, oh, the Lord had said uh, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And that sent him pondering, where is that written? 
And that was very, very useful, not only useful, but necessary for the disciples to know. It happened according to the scriptures. It is not so like a, a, a train which jumps out of the rail and, and the train is overthrown. An accident. No, it was all according to God's plan. And we have that in Acts chapter 1 verse 16. Acts chapter 1 verse 16. Peter standing up among the twelve while they are waiting, praying and waiting for Pentecost, for the Spirit to come, for the day to come. Verse 16, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And that put the disciples immediately at rest with all their troubling thoughts. Everything is according to plan. And the Lord says, now I come to you. And the disciples first, they had been uh, troubled, as he said that. But now he hears them praying, and he knows he prays for us. And he does that, I say it again, in their hearing, that they may have my joy in themselves. His joy. The joy which filled the Lord Jesus in all his ways and works. That, that joy may be in them. And in the uh, book of Acts, we read again and again how the people, how the, how the, the disciples, how they rejoiced, even in suffering. They rejoiced. So this prayer was fulfilled in them. The joy of Jesus was in them, remained in them. Verses 15 and 16. I do not pray that you take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. We are to pass through this world, and there is an evil one, but we are being kept. We are being kept by the Lord. He is using his word. He is using his spirit. He is using also the fellowship of the saints, and through and by his intercession, we are kept. Kept from the evil one and carried through all the way to glory. And then the, the second prayer, verse 17, sanctify them. That means keep them apart, that they don't mix with the world and be drawn away with the ways of the world and the aims and goals of the world. Keep them on track. Keep them close to you. Keep them so that they have a goal before their eyes and continue and, and follow uh, the footsteps, my footsteps, looking up unto me, Hebrews 12, verse 2, sanctify them. And how does that happen? Sanctify them by the truth, the truth of God, the truth of man, the truth of the world, the truth of salvation. All these truths sanctify us. Keep us separate from the thinking of the world and the acts of the world and the aims of the world. And where is the truth to be found? Thy word is truth. It is in the written word of God. The written word of God has that power to sanctify and therefore we read the word for ourselves. It sanctifies us. And therefore we preach the word so that all can hear the word. And that has always this sanctifying power. And that is a great comfort. 
for start to have the ministry of preaching. The word does its work. It does according to the prayer of the Lord. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. He has given that power to the word. His word that it does that. And we are sent into the world. We have a commission. We heard about the commission, the great commission, which is not an option, a command. Hudson Taylor, commission. We heard the example of Spurgeon. We are sent with the truth, to proclaim that truth. And this is how the Lord is using his power to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. The means is the gospel. It's ever the gospel. So we have to preach that gospel. That is our responsibility, our commission. And the Lord, he sanctifies himself, that is, he puts himself apart from this ministry to continuously be acting and uh, interceding on behalf of his own that they remain kept in their, on their way and they continue to fulfill their commission. He is for us in it. He is with us and he is for us before God interceding for us. And then he pr prays about the disciples' his own being one. To be one. And verse 20 begins, therefore, uh, you, you should observe this. Otherwise you won't understand what he means here by being one. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So here the Lord, firstly, and that is very important to see, the word which the apostles preached, wrote, distributed by their writings. That word is the word of God. And this is a very clear uh, indication that uh, with the apostles, with the writings of the apostles, the word of God was finished, fulfilled. And he speaks of all those who, by the word of the apostles, and the word of the apostles is Old and New Testament, of course. Romans shows it. Paul's quoting, all quoting Old Testament. So, by the word of the apostles... Following generations all believe, and the, the unity or the oneness is here, the oneness in the faith. We believe the same things as the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter believed. And Peter, he says it in one of his epistles, in the second epistle, he says, you have received the same faith as I have. No other faith, same faith. One in the faith. Faith in the same truth. Second Peter 1, 1. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Same faith as the apostles. We have the same faith as the believers in the first century. We have the same faith as the believers throughout antiquity. We have the same faith as the reformers, as the Puritans, as, as uh, uh, um, George Whitfield, John Wesley, maybe someone else. Some don't like that I mentioned John Wesley. Well, I don't share all his views, but we have the same faith as John Wesley has. The same saving faith, the same Savior, the same Word of God. We have the same faith as uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 
The same faith has been kept throughout all these centuries. We are one in that faith. And that is a very strong argument for the world to believe. Well, the whole world will not believe, but for such who believe, that really encourages us to see. We have the same faith, same faith, like Luther, like David even. We read the Psalms and we know David's God is our God. And these words are true. We believe in the same God, in the same scriptures, in the same Savior. So we are one by the word, by the word of the apostle which has been kept, preserved and preached throughout the centuries. And then comes this unity, this oneness of life. This oneness of life. Verse 22, the glory verse 21, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then verse 22, the glory which you have given me I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity or oneness rather, so that the world may know that you sent me. And it is this union, we are one, we are one. This is oneness with the Father, with the Son, among each other. John speaks about this fellowship which we have with the Father and the Son and with each other in his first epistle. It is a fellowship of life, of divine life, of the life of God, of the truth of God. This oneness. And he prays for that. And this is a very strong incentive. Very strong incentive. This morning again I prayed. I prayed for, for a good friend of mine, very faithful servant in, in his uh, local church. And there has been, a, 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 not a split in the church, but someone whom he really loves has uh, turned away from the church and he has uh, grudges against the church and especially against him. And I always pray according to John 17, it is thy will that we be one work in the hearts and in the lives of all concerned, that they again are reconciled and together serve and follow thee. I pray this every morning. And we have the scriptures to give us the assurance that this is according to his will. And when we pray according to his will, it will eventually happen. It will. It will. So we pray that we may be one, evermore one, and remain one, and be kept one, also as local churches, also as churches who have fellowship with each other, among each other. And then he says here in verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given them. So the glory which the Father gave him in his humanity, he gives to all his redeemed. So here we have this truth again. And then he prays, in, prays in, in, in verse 24, Father, I desire. I desire. What a desire he has. And that he desires such a thing. I desire. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. He loves us. He wants to have us close with him. He's redeemed his own, his beloved and he wants them to see his glory, that they may see, to be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
the eternal love between the Father and the Son, this bond which keeps them together, this bond of love. And the Father gives souls to the Son, and because the Son loves the Father, he fulfills this commission. And none will be lost, because they belong to the Father, and he gave them to the Son, that he saved them, and keep them, sanctify them, and in the end bring them to glory. Yes, 25 righteous Father. He is the Holy Father, verse 11, a title reserved for God alone. Woe unto any man who allows him to be called Holy Father, and woe to those who call any man Holy Father. We are not to call any man Holy Father. Holy Father, that is God the Father. And he is the righteous Father. And he is love. And he loves the Son. And the Son loves him. And he loves his own. He loves the ones that his Son has redeemed. And then in verse 26, these are the last words which our heavenly high priest speaks in the hearing of the disciples. I have made your name known to them and I will make it known. So I will not continue. I will not... uh, 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 I will will continue to instruct them, to teach them, to make them grow in the knowledge of, of, of you so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The love which the Father has for his Son exceeds all love he has for anyone else. And the Son, he says it himself, he gives his Father reasons to love him. We have one such an instance in in, in the Gospel of John. The Son gives his Father reasons to love him. We can never give God reasons to love us. On the contrary, he loves us in spite of us. The Son gives his Father reasons to love in John chapter 10. John 10, 17. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life. And now we read that with that same love with which the Father loves his Son. The Father loves us. We can't take it in. We can't take it in. But it is true. It is true. And it will take all eternity for us to understand that love. And all eternity we will grow in the knowledge of that love. Without ending. Grow ever more, ever deeper, ever higher in the knowledge of that God and of his love to us. What a God, what a Savior, what a glorious Savior and heavenly high priest who in, in such a way and with these things in his heart prays for his own, for you and for me. Amen.